And now, here they are, the Beatles! Hi, I'm Justin Shears, and welcome to Only a Northern Song. In this series, I'll be exploring the words and the music of the Beatles, but not through the usual tracks that we all know so well. I'll be delving into my extensive collection of outtakes, home recordings and demos, alternate mixes and interviews, to shed some new light on lesser known aspects of the Beatles' recorded legacy. The Beatles and the Rolling Stones had been friends, both musically and personally, for some time. In fact, in 1963, John and Paul had donated I Want to Be Your Man for the Stones' second single before they even recorded it themselves. And various members of the Rolling Stones had been studio guests during several Beatles sessions in 1967. Indeed, George had been at Keith Richards' house in February when Mick Jagger and Keith were busted. Thankfully, George had left by the time the police arrived. While John and Paul were at Olympic Sound Studios in June 1967, they contributed some backing vocals for the Stones track, We Love You, recorded during sessions for the Stones LP, Their Satanic Majesty's Request, the cover for which bore more than a passing resemblance to that of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. In the same ways that the Beatles were pushing the boundaries of songwriting and recording, the world of technology was also evolving. The space race had not yet managed to put a man on the moon, that would need to wait a couple of years. But satellites were buzzing around the planet, allowing for giant leaps in communication. Our world, the brainchild of the BBC, was to be the first live international satellite television production due to be broadcast on the 25th of June, 1967. Creative artists from 19 nations, including opera singer Maria Callas and painter Pablo Picasso, were invited to perform or appear in separate segments featuring their countries. Who better to represent Britain and to close this momentous occasion than the Beatles? It was supposedly the very first satellite hookup around the world. I don't know how many millions of people, but it was supposed to be some phenomenal amount of people. 
And it was a, probably the very earliest technology that enabled that kind of satellite link. Good evening. This should be a moment in television history because this program will bring together more places throughout the world than has ever been possible before. Live pictures from across the world will be brought to us here in Britain. At the same time, they will reach millions of viewers in 24 different countries throughout the world. For some people watching, it will be the evening as it is for us. For some, it will be breakfast time. For others, the middle of the day. For others, the middle of the night. This evening, by using satellites, microwaves and landlines, we will link Europe with Africa, Asia, Australia and America. Here in Britain, as well as receiving the programme, we're also contributing to it. We will look at the exciting new town of Cumbernauld, and from London, the still unconquerable Beatles. One thing we must make clear, in the next two hours, everything will be live, no film or recording. John wrote All You Need Is Love specially for the television show. Um, it was a commission that was Brian suddenly whirled in and said, we are to represent Britain in this round-the-world hook-up, and you've got, to, you've got to write a song. Because the mood of the time, it seemed to be a great idea to do that song because while everybody else was showing them people knitting in Canada and Irish clog dancers in Venezuela, we thought, well, we'll just sing All You Need Is Love because it's a kind of subtle bit of PR for um, God, basically. <laughs> and I don't know if the song was written before that, because we were making an album at the time, so there was kind of lots of songs in circulation. Paul may know more about that. Over to you, Paul. Um, I'm not sure. It was John's song mainly. Um, I don't think it was written specially for it, but it was one of the songs we had, and, and it was certainly tailored to it once we had it. But I've got a feeling it was just one of John's songs that was coming there. And we went down to Olympic Studios in Barnes and uh, recorded it. And, I, it um, and then it became the song they said, ah, this is the one we should use. I don't actually think it was written for it. Well, Kenny, yes, there were a few differences. You see, what happened was the fella from the BBC, an organisation which I'm sure you've heard of, asked us to uh, get together a song for this, you see. So he said, well, we'll get together one with nice, easy words so that everyone can understand it. And he said, all right, then, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. So we went away and we just played Monopoly for a bit. And then the fellow said, now, where's the song? So we said, ah, don't worry, Derek. His name was Derek Burrell Davis. He said, don't worry, Derek Burrell Davis. We'll soon have a song for you. So John and I just got together thought now uh, mm -hmm, blah 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 we thought blah and I wrote one and John wrote one and we went to the session and we just decided to do his first anyway by the time we'd done the backing track for his we suddenly realized that his, his was the one you see all you need is love perfect you know just for to say if you're going to say any message then that's a fine wonderful <clears throat> message to say you see so we just put that one uh, uh, put the track down and then we did the vocal and everything and it turned into it so we still got mine ready to do for the next one which is of a similar nature in its simplicity but with a different message
The song itself was a continuation of the themes explored by John in The Word from the Rubber Soul LP. The Word was love, but not the boy meets girl kind of love that pervaded many of the Beatles' early hits. This was different, an all-encompassing love of humanity in the time of Vietnam and growing civil unrest around the globe. But the Beatles were not about to risk their reputations by playing absolutely live to the rest of the world in a single take. The plan was to record most of the new song in the studio and then have the vocals and orchestrations overdubbed in front of the cameras on the night. Despite the now well-established view of Abbey Road being home to the Beatles, the band actually convened in Olympic Studios in southwest London, home to the Rolling Stones, to record the basic tracks for their latest gift to the world. I want you to get out of your seats and swim. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. I believe you, Johnny. There's nothing you can sing that can't be sung. Sure is. There's nothing you can say, but you can learn how to play the game. Johnny. It's easy. You're right, boy. You're right there, boy. I'm ready to sing for the world, George, if you just give me the bucket.
a reconstruction of Take 10 of All You Need Is Love, recorded on the 14th of June 1967, just 11 days out from the Our World broadcast. With Ringo on drums, John on harpsichord, Paul on double bass, and George dabbling with violin, 33 takes were recorded, with Take 10 being marked as best. The 19th of June saw the addition of piano, this time played by George Martin, some lead and backing vocals, Ringo's distinctive tapping on the back of an acoustic guitar, as well as banjo played by John, harking back to the very first instrument he was taught by his mother. The following few days were put to good use, with several remixes made, orchestra parts overdubbed, and rehearsals for the big night. The usually locked doors of Abbey Road Studio One were thrown open to photographers and journalists to document the final run-throughs. By this time, the decision had been made to release the song as a single as soon as possible after the satellite broadcast, with nearly half a billion people already having had a preview. Finally, on the 25th of June 1967, the time came to front the cameras to be beamed live into millions of households worldwide. Studio One was full of people in bright Carnaby Street fashions, with balloons and flowers adorning the space. A lot of trouble to go to considering it was a black and white telecast. Guests included Mick and Keith from the Rolling Stones, Marianne Faithfull, Keith Moon from The Who, Eric Clapton, Mike McCartney, Graham Nash of The Hollies, and of course, Paddy Harrison and Jane Asher. Placards with Love Is All You Need, written in many languages, were given to the guests to wear in the finale. And of course, the Beatles, along with the 13 symphony men hired for the occasion, were centre stage on their instruments, ready to sing for the world. We all dressed up again. See, we were getting into, we love dressing up. <laughs> we had another suit, but mine was so bloody heavy. As you know, Simon and Marika from The Fool was the company. <laughs> and I had all this beading on, and uh, it just weighed a ton. It was a fabulous time, musically and spiritually. Understandably, stress levels were high in the minutes before the broadcast. The Beatles segment had been scheduled for 8.54pm London time, but the television producers cut to Abbey Road about 40 seconds early, putting everyone more on edge and sending producer George Martin and engineer Jeff Emmerich scrambling to hide the whiskey bottle and glasses they were enjoying at the time under the recording console. It was time. We had prepared a track, a basic track for the recording for the television show, but we were going to do a lot live. And there was an orchestra that was live, and the singing was live, and certain audience and so on. And we knew it was going to be a live television show. And just at the, and there was also a camera in the control room on us, doing our bits. And just about 30 seconds to go on the air, and there was a phone call, and it was the producer of the show on to me saying, I'm afraid I've lost all contact with the, with the studio. You're going to have to relay instructions to them, because we're going on air any moment now. And I thought, my God, if you're going to make a fool of yourself, you might as well do it properly in front of 200 million people. <laughs> And the man upstairs pointed his finger, and that's it. We did it, one take. Love is all you need. Love. 
This is Steve Race in the Beatles recording studio in London, where the latest Beatle record is at this moment being built up. Not just a single performance, but a whole montage of performances. With some friends in to help the atmosphere, this is quite an occasion. Backing very nicely. We'll get the musicians in now. Thanks. And we'll do the last track. Oh, great, great. Okay. Run back the tape, please, Richard. There's several days' work on that tape. For perhaps the hundredth time, the engineer runs it back to the start for yet another stage in the making of an almost certain hit record. The supervisor is George Martin, the musical brain behind all the Beatles' records. There's the orchestra coming into the studio now, and you'll notice that the musicians are not rock and roll youngsters. The Beatles get on best with symphony men. The boys began by making a basic instrumental track on their own. Then they added on top of that a second track of vocal backgrounds and they've just added a third track. Now comes the final stage. It brings in a solo vocal from John Lennon and for the first time the orchestra. Here then is final mixed track take one of a song which we offer to the whole world. All you need is love. Alright, we're ready? Let's go for it then. Hands on musicians please. Get them on. All right, here we go then. We'll send the tape. Are you ready, Richard? Just coming. Okay, Jeff. Yep. All right, here we go. Okay, Richard. Here yeah. comes the tape. Watch go. it. Copy from the original backing Is all you need. 
broadcast version of Take 59 of All You Need Is Love. Its outro featuring renditions of King Henry VIII's Greensleeve, played in half-time, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto, aptly played by Penny Lane trumpeter Dave Mason, and Glenn Miller's In The Mood, the inclusion of which attracted the attention of copywriters and the demand for a fee for its use. The Beatles also briefly delved into their own back catalogue, by including a couple of lines from She Loves You, although who exactly sings these lines, John or Paul, is still hotly debated amongst Beatles scholars to this day. And all we need is love. It, was it a sort of real put on and saying, with the takeoff I She Loves You, was, it just, was there any real hidden psychological no, significance of saying? it was very spontaneous, actually. It wasn't the same, really, no. was it sub- subconsciously, you think, put because down the you old image? At the end of the, of All You Need Is Love, there's green sleeves and in the mood and all sorts of different right, tunes right. are all coming over the end and, uh, I don't know, Paul just thought of it at the time, just started, She Loves You. Once the guests had gone home and the camera crew retreated, all that was left was some minor touch-ups to the vocals and the track was ready to be mixed and released less than two weeks later and only five weeks after Sgt Pepper. Another instant number one. The Beatles now took a few weeks break from the studio 
including a quiet trip to Greece to investigate buying an island as a retreat for the Fab Four. During August, there was also a new addition to the Starkey family. Why the name Jason? Uh, Maureen picked the name Jason because I picked that, you see, so it's Maureen's turn. Any particular reasons for Jason? Oh, well, it's a good name. Doesn't, you know, it's not meaning anything. Now, does the baby look more like Maureen or more like you? He looks exactly like Zach was when he was born, but he looks like me anyway. <laughs> uh, were you expecting Did you want a boy this time? Or yeah, did it you didn't matter this time, way? a girl or a boy. Just as long as they're both all right. Now, it's just one day old. I know it's probably a silly question, but any plans for this baby? Any plans for Zach at all? Perhaps two um, other drummers? No, no, no. No plans yet. It's both too young. Just let them play as long as they like then and see if they want to do anything. Do you like a larger family still? <coughs> well, I don't know. Two is sort of all right. You know, if we only have two, that's all right. And if we have more, mm. that's all right. <laughs> Everything's all right. I'm all right. How are you? Convening at yet another London studio on the 22nd of August, this time Chapel Recording Studios, the Beatles resumed work on new songs for the upcoming film projects they had. The next song was written by Paul in the same vein as When I'm 64, a nostalgic look back and a nod to his father's jazz origins, and was most likely composed at home while his uncle Harry and Auntie Jin were staying with him. A lot of what happened with the Beatles was based on our memories, so songs like Your Mother Should Know, which appears in Magical Mystery Tour, is almost like a music hall song which is in the style that our parents would grow up to and we would hear as young kids and that we'd broken away from as we went into rock and roll. I think towards the end of the film we wanted something bigger, a bit of a production number. So we got into our white tuxedos and called upon some ballroom dancing teams
Take Eight of Your Mother Should Know, the song destined to end the Magical Mystery Tour film. Only two Beatles were present on this recording, Paul on piano and vocals, and of course Ringo on drums. The Beatles would pause again in the coming week to travel at George's invitation to be enlightened in a whole new way. stepping stone to get me onto something, onto the spiritual side of it. I'm not sitting around and really studying it, but I've been, while I was in India, I just tried to find out as much about it as possible. You know, because in the West year stories, you hear, you know, the mysticism and all this, and people levitating, and people in the Himalayas in caves, you hear all sorts of funny things. But by going there, you know, I just, uh, it just confirmed lots of things that I'd heard. And I found out, it was great really, because the religion, it's, you know, it's a very strong thing there, because they've got nothing material or very little material wealth. Mm -hmm. And uh, so those people over the thousand years have had to turn to themselves, you know, for some answer. And uh, so they've got this great spiritual quality which is lacking in the West. You know, the whole thing of religion in the West, which is, like you were just saying before, question mark. And people are questioning it, it, the whole thing, you know. But over there, I found out there's lots of people. There's always been people, you know, like Jesus Christ. Every generation, you know, there's there's people who know it and who pass it on to their disciples, who pass it on and keep passing it on. And so, in India, there's thousands of these people. You know, lots and lots of them. There's people who they come to America as well, you know. There's, to spring to mind, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and another one called Mayor Barber. Now these are, you know, to the average Western person, they just look like, you know, a little Indian fellow with long hair and a beard. But in actual fact, you know, these people are so hip and so groovy, you know, that they, they can do all that, you know, all those tricks that, uh, you know, all those miracles and things, if they want to, you know, but that's not the point, you know, the thing is that they've attained uh, perfection and that they're going around trying to spread the word, you know, the same sort of thing as Jesus Christ, because it is, it's all the same scene, you know, there's only one religion really, you know, whether you're Christian or Hindu or Buddhist, whatever it is, they're all only branches off one big tree. That's where I really went for the um, meditation. And there's this thing called a mantra. Uh, Through the mantra, you, you can follow a technique that, helps you to transcend that is to go beyond the waking sleeping dreaming state so i got myself to the point where okay i need a mantra uh you know where do you go you know go to harrods and get a mantra but then i met david Wynn, who said showed me this picture and he said oh he's coming to do a lecture at the hilton he's called maharishi so i said okay i'll go i got some tickets and then i thought well i'll get some in case the others want to go 
oh yeah, all right. So we went along, and I thought he made a lot of sense, you know, um, I think we all did, because he basically said that with a simple system of meditation, 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening, no big sort of crazy thing, you can improve the quality of your life and sort of find some sort of meaning in doing so. And after the lecture we went, because, you know, that was one of the privileges of the Beatles who you could get in anywhere, so we got backstage, met Maharishi, and, um, you know, I said to him, uh, got any mantras? <laughs> Give us a mantra. And he said, well, we're going to Bangor tomorrow. You should come and get initiated. And at uh, that time, Maureen was in hospital having Jason. I was visiting. And uh, I came home and I put on the answer phone. Even in those days, we had answer phones. Uh, and as a message from John, oh, man, we've seen this guy and we're all going to Wales. You've got to come. The next message was George saying, wow, man, we've seen this guy. Maharishi's great. We're all going to Wales on Saturday. You've got to come. The Beatles seem to be among your supporters now. How do you feel about that? Uh, I feel a great promise for the younger generation because if the Beatles take up this transcendental meditation, they are the ideal of energy and intelligence in the younger generation, and that will really bring up the youth on a very good level of understanding and intelligence. I'm very happy about it, that they had my lecture last evening, and they talked to me for about an hour after the lecture. They seem to be very intelligent and alert. We'd sort of run on, mate, hey, we're going up there, he's great, this guy, oh, you want to come and see him, you know, you... Um, it's like a good book you'd read. You try, hey, you ought to get it. I'll get, I'll send you a copy. Sort of that kind of thing. You know, you, you ought to come. He's going to be there. Come with us. And we got up there. There was a big crowd at the at the train station. There was a crowd to meet us, and we all sort of wandered through in our psychedelic gear, and spent like a sort of. It was like a summer camp. It was like a school, you know, that they've taken over, and and you sit around, and he tells you how to do it, and you go up to your room and try and do it, and of course you can't the first half hour, you know, you're sitting there and you've got a mantra to meditate on and, you, and you're, think, you're thinking, going, oh, that's good, bloody hell, that train journey was a bit much, wasn't it? Oh, sorry, mantra. Bloody hell, I wonder what our next record's going to be. Well, you know, I've been trying, oh, stop, stop, stop. And you spend all your first few days just trying to stop your mind dealing with your social calendar, you know, whatever's coming up. God, he's a funny bloke, that man. Oh, no. Um, but it was good. I was really impressed with the Maharishi, and I was impressed because he was laughing all the time. And, uh, you know, so we listened to his lectures, and we started meditating, and we were given our mantras. Uh, it was another point of view. It's the first time we were getting into sort of Eastern philosophies now. You know, you just sort of sit there, and you let your mind go, whatever it's going, doesn't matter what you're thinking about, just let it go. And then you just introduce the, the mantra or the, the vibration just to take over from the thought. You don't will it or use your willpower. Having met the Maharishi for the first time in London on the 24th of August 1967, the Beatles made the trip to Bangor in Wales the following day to spend the weekend studying transcendental meditation, something they hoped could be a more natural replacement for LSD. Manager Brian Epstein was due to join them the following day. I, I seem to recall it was a phone call that somebody came uh, to us in, in this place in Bangor and said, uh, 
and that he died, that was kind of stunning because we were off on this sort of finding the meaning of life and there he was, dead. I had a most extraordinary week. My, my father died, I was moving house, my wife was pregnant with our first child and when our child was born, Lucy, um, when she was born we took her down to the country, to my country house and it was then I went up to the local place in the village and the village shopkeeper said to me, I'm sorry about your friend. I said, what do you mean? He said, Brian Epstein. I'm sorry about that. I said, well, what happened? He said, he's dead, didn't you know? And it was a terrible shock. And uh, we, w we all went back to London. And we'd been down in the country um, with, the, with the kid. And on the doorstep of our London flat was a huge bunch of flowers from Brian congratulating us on the birth of our child. And they were very dead, and so was he. I remember being in Wales with Maharishi. We'd just gone down after seeing his lecture the first night, and we went down to Wales, and we heard it then. You know. Somebody came up to us, the press were there, because we'd gone down with this strange Indian, you know. And they said, Brian's dead, and we, we, I was st stunned, you know, and we all were, I suppose. Well, I don't know what to say, you know. We've only just ah. heard, and it's hard to think yeah, of things right, to say. But he was just a beautiful Excuse fella, me. you know, Sorry. and it's terrible. What are your plans now? Well, we haven't made any. You know. I mean, it's only just—we only just heard. Yes, it's you know, it's much of the news to us as there is to everybody else. John, where would you be today without Mr. Epstein? I don't know. Are you are you driving down to London tonight? Yes, somebody's taking us down here. Yeah. You heard the news this afternoon, I believe. Yes. And Paul's already gone down. Yes. I see. What? It, you've no idea what your plans are for tomorrow? No, no. We'd just go and find out, you know. And just have to play everything by ear. Yes. I understand that Mr. Epstein was to be initiated here tomorrow. Yes. Mm. When, when was he coming up? Was he coming up in coming the afternoon? Tomorrow, Monday, that's all we knew. Had you told him very much about the spiritual regeneration movement? Well, as, as much as we'd learned about spiritualism and various things of that nature, then we'd tried to pass on to him, and he was equally as interested as we are, as everybody should be. He, he wanted to know about life as much as we do. Had you spoken to him since, your, uh, since, since you became interested mm. this weekend? No. no. I spoke to him uh, Wednesday evening, the, the evening before we first uh, uh, saw Maharishi's lecture, and he was in great spirits. And when did he tell you that he'd like to be initiated? Well, when we arrived here on, was it was Friday, we got a telephone call later that day to say that Brian would follow us up and be here Monday. Do you intend uh, returning to Bangor uh, before the end of this conference? We probably won't have time now because uh, Maharishi will only be here till about Thursday and we'll have so much to do in London that we'll, we'll have to meet him again some other time. I understand that um, this afternoon uh, Maharishi uh, conferred with you all. Could I ask you what he, what advice he offered you? He told us uh, not to get overwhelmed by grief and to whatever thoughts we have of Brian to keep them happy, because any thoughts we have of have of him will travel to him wherever he is. Had he ever met uh, Mr. Epstein? No, but he was looking forward to meeting him. We were all gutted, you know. It was um, it was it was a huge shock, of course, because he was like one of our one of the people we'd known longest, you know, and, and huge confidant of ours, and we just knew him very well. And, you know, when anyone dies like that, it's just the shock of them being wrenched out of the picture. You go, oh, I'm not going to see him anymore. 
and it was just, you know, blood drained from the face, you know, St. Brian's dead, and there was very little we knew other than that he'd been found dead. It was very strange for it to happen at that precise moment. We just got involved with this meditation. And the Maharishi, we went into him, what? You know, he's dead and all that. And he was sort of saying, oh, forget it, you know, be happy. Fucking idiot. You know, like parents, you know, smile. That's what Maharishi said. So, and we did, and we were along, along with the Maharishi trip. You know. It's your belief system gets suspended. It's because you don't want to hear it so bad. I don't know, you don't know what to do with it anyway. You, if you look at our faces in the film, we're all a bit like, what is it, what does it mean, you know? Our friend is gone, you know? Uh, more our friend than anything else, you know, Brian was a friend of ours. We were all just like dazed, you know. The feeling that anybody has when somebody close to them dies, there's a sort of little hysterical sort of hee-hee, I'm glad it's not me or something in it, you know, that funny feeling when somebody dies. I don't know whether you've had it. I've had a lot of people die on me, you know. And the other feeling is, you know, what, what the fuck, you know? What, what can I do, you know? I mean, what, I, I, I knew that we were in trouble then. I had never, I didn't really have any misconceptions about our ability to do anything other than play music. And uh, I was scared, you know. I thought, we fucking had it now. Here I stand, head in hand, turn my face to the wall. If she's gone, I can't go on, feeling two foot small. Everywhere people stare, each and every day. I can see them laugh at me And I hear them say Hey, you've got to hide your love away Hey, you've got to hide your love away How can I I can never win Hearing them, seeing them In the state I'm in How could she say to me Love will find a way Gather round all you clowns Let me hear you say to hide your love Well, that's it for this episode. Next time, we join the Beatles as they try to make sense of Brian Epstein's death and move forward with new projects. Until next time, 